The opinions expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District or its employees. For more information about the Sewer District and its projects and programs, visit neorsd.org. The Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District presents Clean Water Works, a podcast that explores water, sewer, and stormwater issues that affect you and your community. Learn about the people, projects, and programs that are protecting your health and the environment here in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. repeat anything that I had said previously in the interview that made me sound really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) No, I thought you sounded good. Uh, The bar is low. (laughs) All right. So we are back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Roy Larrick. Round two. Including some uh, questions provided by our own Jen Elting from our communications department. Isn't she great? Yep. So a lot to talk about. Let's get right to it. All right, Roy, what are your favorite secret places of Cleveland that our podcast listeners should know about? Okay, that's, uh, I like that question. Cleveland has wonderful, wonderful areas that, going back to how we started, involve a natural feature that has been transformed by humans, okay? And to me, as an archaeologist, that adds some intrigue and uh, always where water meets land, always rocks and waters together. And when you give me this question, the first place I think of is private, and it is, um, it's called the Clifton Lagoons. It's the beach at the mouth of the Rocky River on the east side of the river channel itself. And uh, there is the last meander, natural remander of the Rocky River that has been cut off and turned into a, um, you know, private boat basin with boathouses that are gentrifying and all that. But the beach itself, you have the channel, the, the, the armored channel of the Rocky River on the west side. On the south, there's this lagoon that's been built up now. And on the north side, there's a beautiful beach. And on the east side, there, is, there are those shale cliffs of Lakewood that uh, meet the water, the beach, and the lagoon. And those features coming together are really special. And, uh, I sneak down there in the winter. <laughs> I would say a good way to maybe yeah. casually scoot over there is you can rent um, kayaks and paddle boards not right. too far from there, right by the marina. Right. So that's that's really good. In in at the border between Richmond Heights, South Euclid, and Euclid, uh, in the metro parks, there's actually. It's not private anymore. The Metro Parks has acquired it, uh, 75 acres at the top of the gorge, the Euclid Creek Gorge on the east side. It's called the Hovenian parcel because the builder, Hovenian, uh, then the Metro Parks acquired it from Hovenian a, a couple of years ago. It's not yet developed, but there is this flat terrace, high terrace, that is the surface of the Euclid Bluestone. The Euclid Bluestone is a rock unit on the east side that's close to my heart, 
and uh, this is the top of it scraped clean by advancing glaciers 23,000 years ago. So it has a thin layer of soil. It has not many trees, although the, the, the forest has been cut down and it's not grown back there because the soil is thin. But the, it goes right up to the Euclid Creek Gorge and drops 120 feet into the creek. And it's at we all know this as the Welch Woods picnic area oh, okay. in Euclid Creek. Those shale cliffs in that meander there, that is at the base. What I'm talking about is at the top of that, which is now, as I say, Metro Park's land, even though not yet developed. And the reason why that is so special is that it's scraped clean by the glaciers still, and uh, the forest is gone except on the rim. And the rim, the actual crest of the terrace and those cliffs, there's a line of chestnut oak trees. And chestnut oaks are, I think, uh, one of the more important niche species that we have. That is, they're adapted to a specific environment that I've just described. So I'll go back to say that chestnut oak, it's an oak of Appalachian origin. Okay, and it uh, in the Appalachian Mountains, it has the reputation for growing in the highest, rockiest areas, where it doesn't have to compete with other trees, but it has to find water and a foothold in these rocks. So it specializes in digging its roots into the cracks between the bedrock and holding on in the wind and everything else. That's exactly what it does on all of our. St- gorges on the east side, including Euclid Creek. And so that area of Euclid Creek is nice because they're literally hanging 120 (laughs) feet above the stream there. Uh, And I like that because it's spectacular, number one, but there's that vision that you can get of these trees that are at their northernmost extension, northwesternmost extension, that are carrying on the way they carry on farther south in Appalachia. And uh, because oaks are temperate trees to begin with, and we're at the, traditionally at the north end of the temperate zone, mm-hmm. uh, but as climate changes, that temperate zone moves north. This is the type of tree that I think we should be making more of in the future. We understand its niche. We can understand that as climate warms, this will be uh, more, even yet more adapted to our area. So let's plant it. And it could be a symbol for the heights, uh, all those areas that are on top of the bluestone and um, uh, have an ecology that's a bit different than the Lake Plain, the Cuyahoga Valley, and, and other areas. So I, I love that area there. I think in the last 20 years, 10 years especially, we're beginning to understand the importance of trees uh, more than we have in maybe more than 100 years. You know, uh, Leonard Case gave us the name, it seems, uh, the Forest City, and uh, that there's some argument on whether that meant that in Leonard Case's time, which was still back in the 1830s, Cleveland was still in a forest, Mm -hmm. uh, or whether, on the other hand, at that time, um, there was a desire to plant fruit trees, number one, uh, and other, and newer ornamentals that were coming in to beautify uh, the city that was rather raw at that time. But in any event, you know, uh, the, uh, our tendency, climate-wise, bedrock-wise, we are a forested area. 
and we remove trees to our own detriment. They expose uh, areas, making them prone to erosion. Yes. How do streams both connect Ohio communities and divide them? Uh, It's easier to see how streams divide. Uh, And take the Cuyahoga River. The actual divide between the west side and the east side is at Public Square. Still, most of us think of the Cuyahoga River as the divide between the east and the west side. West Sider is so surprised to see that uh, uh, there are streets uh, labeled east on the west side (laughs) of the river and vice versa. Okay. Uh, So that's the classic example of how streams divide. Donebrook is a good example of how a stream can actually, you know, aid uh, in softening the border between two neighborhoods. And, you know, they're kind of rarefied neighborhoods, Cleveland Heights on the north side of Doan Brook on the Heights and uh, Shaker Heights on the south side of it. But so those two cities are relatively similar in, in demographics. And that the Doan Brook uh, as a parkland corridor is the place where residents from both sides, from both cities, then uh, gravitate to for walking along, crossing over, and you get some communication there that you would not normally have in a hard boundary. Mm-hmm. Part of our regional stormwater management program really focuses on inner community problems. Classic example would be Parma and North Royalton. Um, you've got a lot of water coming from North Royalton into Parma. Um, and so there's there are dynamics there that we definitely work through as far as, okay, the stream has to flow through, right? The stream right. has to keep flowing. Um, and so we manage flooding as best we can. Um, but streams don't care about where communities right. are, really. They just keep on going. So um, that's a big part of our program. All right. So now that you mentioned that, yes, I had approached it from my bottom-up mm-hmm. uh, perspective. Uh, but I can I can certainly cite the example of Euclid Creek on the east side as one where there back uh, I want to say in the 80s you know as uh, Beechwood especially developed in the headwaters of Euclid Creek and um, you got much more. Imp- impervious surface, then that seemed to exacerbate the flooding downstream. And there were lawsuits among those cities on the east side, yeah, against Beechwood in particular. But that's where the, um, oh, I don't know if I can remember the name, but the the Euclid Creek uh, Watershed Council, I believe is the name, that integrates nine, eight or nine municipalities there. Mm -hmm. And so that has taken a divisive situation that's not side to side, but upstream versus downstream. And that has linked those municipalities together to look for solutions, kind of common solutions, uh, and at least understand what's going on in uh, in each of the municipalities, how they each work, could work in conjunction with each other to lessen flooding and pollution and draw on resources such as available from the sewer district. Yeah. Important to View problems from a watershed scale, not necessarily That's not right. necessarily a community scale. Yeah. I did want to bring up while we're, while we're talking about community involvement. I know that there's um, been a, a recent effort for Dugway potentially un 
culverting. Also, we call that daylighting. Daylighting. Um, parts of, of Dugway Brook. At the, in the lower reaches of Dugway Brook, so not long before it goes into Lake Erie. And there are two entities involved. One is the village of Bratnall, which is on the north side of the Lakeland Freeway and the big CSX tract complex. And then Glenville, uh, where the two branches of Dugway come together just south of the freeway and the and the tracks. And on the north side, the actual mouth is part of a nature preserve uh, owned by the city of Bratnall. But the stream has been treated very poorly. It's been filled in. If you can imagine the Cuyahoga River, what do we think? The Crooked River, it's crooked because it takes a big turn down in Summit County. But uh, when we think of Crooked River, river it's those meanders mm-hmm. of the ship channel mm-hmm. there. Okay, And uh, all of our streams had those kinds of meanders from the Cuyahoga down to the smallest one. So let's take Dugway. Uh, as it approached the lake, it had meanders, as I say, much like the Cuyahoga on a smaller scale. But I don't know, 1890 or so, these meanders were just cut off and it's a straight shot to the lake. So what that means is that we lacked the wetlands that would normally be part of those meanders. And in order to uh, provide for more resilience in the face of climate change, shoreline erosion, and all that, these wetlands ought to be brought back as they can be. So that's north. Now, on the south side, it's altogether different. Dugway is in a culvert, and there is a series of, of parks that are just mown lawns on the fill over the culvert. And uh, North Glenville is that part of town that is, you might say, the most neglected in terms of development initiatives. Glenville to the south, toward University Circle, is in some sense doing okay these days with investment, uh, both uh, commercial and uh, from the community development side. North Glenville has been lagging. So there is a chance uh, in this northern part of Glenville where there is some flooding uh, over that culvert there and where it would make sense to deal with flooding, to open up that stream, uh, we are talking about a uh, project to daylight the stream, uncover it in Glenville, and then enhance those wetland qualities on the north side. A number of us, that is Chagrin River Watershed Partners, uh, Doanbrook Watershed Partnership, and the Cuyahoga Soil and Water uh, is also involved in Bluestone, working with the sewer district then to apply for the first stage of funding from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation to do a a pre-planning study here to, number one, go into the neighborhoods, especially in Glenville, to understand if this would be an attractive uh, change in their neighborhood, to have a stream instead of just a park. And if you do this kind of daylighting, uh, there would be a compromise, a balance, you might say, between normal park amenities and then the nature side of things. So this is a big change. This would be a big change. And the trade-off would be you'd, you'd have a stream, but you'd have to give up some of the amenities that require yeah. a hard surface. like That's a, right. Uh, a playground area or Play, Playgrounds. There are a number of uh, baseball diamonds, for example, and uh, in the current uh, in the in the current construction for the shoreline tunnel that goes through there, uh, there has 
been one or two of these eliminated. Now, possibly they can come back. Nobody likes to take uh, park amenities away sure. from a neighborhood. What I have seen is that community outreach has uh, come to be very important in these projects. It's no longer, well, you know, it's best for the stream to do this. The sewer district would like to do this. It's It has to go to the community. There has to be, as we say, buy-in. Um, um, and I like this because it makes it really a, a more robust project, a richer project. It is, you get the ideas of a number of people and it's a stronger way to rebuild the city. And uh, walking tours is yeah. a, a primary form of outreach, right? An acute <laughs> form of outreach, right. That I'd like to do them. Uh, I can always find, even in the most urban of situations, I can find, you know, a little bit of bedrock outcrop or once again, one of these ghost ravines uh, that uh, people pass on their daily lives and they don't know, they, they don't even recognize what it is. And it's, uh, uh, I get joy out of uh, opening up an environment to residents or bringing residents to the environment. So yes, uh, walking tours are my specialty. Can I say a little bit about the Horseshoe Project? Oh, absolutely. Yes. The official name of the project is Don't Brook Restoration Near Horseshoe Lake Park. And uh, this is, uh, well, the the result of uh, of several agencies making determinations. And the big one is the state of Ohio, Ohio Department of Natural Resources, condemning the Horseshoe Lake Dam. And uh, that's where it all starts. And that's where it, in some sense, all ends. Uh, for those who would like to replace that dam, there's always going to be the issue of a permit from ODNR, which I think will be very difficult to get, uh, even with the best of plans. Let's think of it this way. Here we have a, a dam that was put up in 1852, so 170-some years ago. And it was put up for a specific reason, to provide a mill pond for an industry of the period. And that period is long gone. So the original function of the dam is long gone. and uh, But the mill pond is still there, and it's beautiful. I like it. I had relatives right on Shelburne and North Park, so I know that lake very well growing up. But we're, the state of Ohio has condemned it, and that would mean that to maintain the lake would need a new dam. And a new mm-hmm. dam is not going to be with historic character by any means. It would be concrete for one, and it would have a different configuration probably in a bit of a different place. And if I can jump in here, it's a class one dam, which is the highest class of dam. Um, and it's a class one dam because of the hazard class, which is means that there's a uh, probable loss of human life if there were a big enough storm to come through. Um, and so because it's a class one dam, it would have to pass one of the the probable maximum flood. It's a very large storm event that would have to come through. Um, And so like Roy was saying, it would not be a quaint little dam. It would be a very, very large structure, very expensive structure with its own associated risks. Yeah. 
I feel for uh, the group that would like to maintain the lake and and reconstruct the dam. But my own personal vision is that uh, we're in this time of climate change and no one knows what's coming. But what we do know is that each year gets warmer and wetter. We're here in uh, late September now, but through June, July, and August, we got these reports from all over the world, but all over the U.S. about these thousand-year floods, storms, rainstorms, Mm -hmm. uh, that were devastating parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, St. Louis area. Michigan. Michigan, yeah. So... When you don't know what's coming, but you see what has come, I just myself can't fathom of trying to reinstitute what would now be an amenity dam, a landscaping project in light of uh, the changing climate. And if I were sitting on the ODNR, you know, permitting board for class one dams, I wouldn't know what to permit these days. So to me, that's the that's the real problem with the dam is that uh, with maintaining Horseshoe Lake in any form is that we just don't know what's coming, and it's kind of I'll say irresponsible to to try to keep a feature or rebuild a feature that has passed its time. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's turn to the project itself. This has been. Uh, such a lot of fun with me. It has been a great time to uh, work with with people from all over the eastern U.S. uh, with various expertise, and then to begin this public outreach, six months of public outreach, and uh, in the face of the controversy, but try to put together the best means for reaching out to the communities. And we've really tried to make this a Donebrook project that um, that sees uh, Horseshoe Lake in terms of its larger context in along the stream and the watershed itself. Uh, it's been a lot of work, but I think that after these uh, six months of uh, pre-planning public engagement are finished, we're going to come up with some really nice alternatives for what the park, the whole project area, and the stream can be for, let's say, the next century. So this area, in naturalizing it, the, you know, the trick is to understand what residents would like, plus what you can do uh, on an engineering basis to, uh, to reconvey the water uh, without the dam. Okay, so you've got to go from a high level at the far end of the reservoir, the the mill, the old mill pond. And the interesting thing is that just downstream of the dam, the ravine gets deep, and so and it's degraded. The stream channel is degraded. So I think the most the the, the wonderful um, alternatives involve uh, reconfiguring or renaturalizing the stream from Park Drive at the far end of the lake all the way down to Lee Road. And this could be something that park-wise is spectacular. And I think put the upper reach of Doan Brook, the North Branch anyway, on a solid footing for the future. Mm-hmm. The next step for for this project for the public is going to be um, presenting these alternatives. And We'll be interested to see what the public likes about the different alternatives. And it might not be, you know, we're going to go with alternative one. It might be we take all the pieces and parts that the 
the public likes about the different alternatives. We look at what's best for the stream, and then we move forward into the rest of pre-design and design. Roy Larrick, it's been a pleasure. This is our first podcast featuring a guest uh, outside of the district, and we certainly want to highlight the partnerships um, and the different connections we can make with the, the communities that we serve, um, not just working on the, the gray side of our work with uh, pipes and sewers and treatment plants, but also our involvement in rehabilitating stream systems. So it's been a, a really great uh, pleasure having you here to talk about one of those or several of those projects. You're welcome, and I have enjoyed it myself. Thanks. Thanks so much. Did you know eligible customers can save up to 40% on their sewer charges? Learn more about the Sewer District's cost-saving programs and use our discount calculator at neorsd.org slash save or call 216-881-8247. That's neorsd.org slash save or 216-881-8247. Clean Waterworks is produced by the Communications and Community Relations Department at the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. Our music was composed and performed by G.S. Shrey. If you have a question or suggestion, or if you'd like to learn more about the Regional Sewer District, visit neorsd.org or call 216-881-8247.